Hey everyone, thank you guys for tuning in. For this episode, we have an interview with Daniel Isles. Daniel is a huge personal finance advocate and spreads his message across his TikTok and Instagram pages where he has over 800,000 followers. He loves to help young adults manage their money and guides them to financial success. Aside from personal finance, he talks a lot about getting good credit scores to ultimately be successful in real estate. Throughout the interview, we talk a lot about credit in real estate and we also touch upon topics such as investing and social media marketing. We learned a lot from this interview, so we hope you guys enjoy. Thank you, Daniel, for joining the show. How are you doing? Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. And, you know, we just want to get straight into it. We know that you're a huge Instagram and TikTok creator, and you have a lot of followers, and you like to preach personal finance and especially try to get people to get on the path of financial freedom. But we kind of want to ask you, where did this all begin? How did this journey start to the point where you're here right now? It started in a very similar way that it started for you guys. I read uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was like 16, I think, and it made a huge difference in my life. I really took a lot of value from it. And it really did like pull back the curtain on something that no one in my friend group, definitely not my parents or anyone that I really talked to on a consistent basis, ever talked about. Personal finance was like this thing that was kind of out there and that I understood that I needed to uh, learn about it and hopefully master it if I wanted to be wealthy in the future. But there wasn't a resource for me to go to, to really learn about it. And so I continued on reading books uh, similar to Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that helped me kind of develop an awareness for personal finance. But I didn't really start becoming passionate about it or truly understanding it to the point where I can use what I was learning until I started watching YouTubers do it. People like Graham Stephan, Andre Zik came later, of course, meet Kevin, Marco, Whiteboard Finance, Nate O'Brien, Brian Scribner. I can list off a bunch of names, but I was all watching those guys as a replacement for my Netflix. And it really uh, motivated me to actually do something because I was suddenly surrounded by dozens of people who were very much like me at one point in their lives who are talking about personal finance and sharing their stories and how they were able to change their circumstances. And so that's what got me to take my first steps. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of like, like you said, that's, that's pretty much how we started exactly. So after you started learning around, you said you also learned on it about it pretty early on. How did you start, um, you know, really putting the fundamental values that, you know, Robert Kiyosaki talks about a lot of these, other books talk about early on in your younger years. How did I start implementing them? Yeah. Like, so, um, how, like, uh, uh, when do you actually start putting like a personal finance to use, I guess, like how, how do you, how did you start that off? Well, I started way later than I should have just because I didn't have, um, like, I guess enough exposure, uh, mm-hmm. early enough in, um, in my years. Um, <laughs> so I got my first credit card and it was a secured uh, credit card with my bank when I was like 21, I think. And it was far too late because at that point I had already purchased multiple vehicles, had loans on them, was overpaying for them. But the reason I got the secured credit card is because I realized that I eventually wanted to buy a house. So at 21, I started building my credits. I took every step that I could to accelerate the process. I like really deep dived into credits to try to understand as much as I could about it. And I took my credits from basically nothing. I I hadn't had any credit history before that secured card um, to getting uh, some of the best credit cards within like a year. And then 
about a year and three months after getting that secured card, I was able to buy my first rental property uh, with the good credit that I had established at the lowest going rate at the time, which was 3.25. Wow, that's crazy that, you know, even though you started a little bit later than you should have in terms of a credit card, you still had a really fast process of developing a good credit score and being able to buy those houses and those rental properties. So I kind of want to take a little step back and talk about when you first, you know, kind of went into the real world in terms of college. So my first question is, did you go to college? I did go to college and I was 21 when I graduated. Um, I, I went for business administration and accounting, which are two like money relevant degrees that you would think that a, a person graduating with degree with these degrees should definitely understand money really well, right? He's accountant, he's managing other people's money. He's a, he's a, business, administrator, a business administrator graduate. He's working with other businesses, consulting businesses. And I was, I was helping them plan their taxes and organize things with their loans, but I still had no clue how to manage my own money. So it really did require a whole separate like subset of information gathering, which I did through YouTube and through books to learn about personal finance in a way that I could use it to actually benefit myself and not just these corporations who, you know, have their S election and are filing their taxes through someone like me, um, where, where I know the very details of how I need to structure their tax return, but not what a credit card is or how I can use it. So it's this very huge gap between these uh, two subsets of like money knowledge. And I was completely lacking in the personal finance. Yeah, I think you kind of answered my second question, which was about to be, did you actually learn anything in college pertaining to personal finance in the real world? And that's a lot of your answer is what a lot of people have told us, because a lot of young people, when they're about to exit high school, they think that they'll be set once they go into college and then their path will be just get the college knowledge and then you'll be set. But there's obviously some extra steps onwards afterwards, which, you know, since you were able to take the time to learn about personal finance, you're obviously a lot ahead of the curve, but some people, they're just not aware of it. So when did it hit you that a lot of people are just, you know, not going to be prepared for this and you had to felt the need that you had to start creating content on this? Um, I didn't feel like I needed to create content on it because there was already a lot of content. Mm -hmm. I just felt really inspired by the people who were creating content that I was very consistently consuming. Like I said before, I completely replaced Netflix with YouTube and almost every single night I would get home and like unwind for like 30 minutes to an hour um, of of TV, but instead of like Netflix or a movie or whatever that most people watch, I, I literally watched people breaking down um, house hack on their, on their like Excel calculators and showing their newest rental property and why they passed over this rental property in favor for that one, or watching Ask Sebi discuss like the newest Chase credit card that came out and whether it's good or not. It's like, that's the type of stuff that I replaced my um, leisure time with. And so I was able to um, entertain myself and then also gain a lot of relevant knowledge that I would use for my own credit cards, for my own personal credits, personal finance, and then of course, real estate investing. I see. Uh, so you, you talk a lot about like you, you did have to make a few sacrifices with, um, you know, replacing uh, your TV with YouTube, but what other, were there any other obstacles or sacrifices that you had to make when sort of moving on with your personal finance journey? Absolutely. I understood from Robert Kiyosaki back when I was like 16, that I need to save money 
and put it to use. And so basically like a few months after reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I got a job as a busser and I moved jobs a little bit between a busser and a, a waiter. And then eventually I uh, went into personal training sales and then became a personal trainer. But regardless, I always had like a job or eventually it turned into a side hustle where it was my own business. And I was a subcontractor for someone else as a personal trainer. But on, through all of this, I was making money and I was working. And when I went into college, my initial plan was to go into engineering where I would be able to get a really stable job, have um, great job prospects and make my mom really proud because that's what she wanted me to do is be an engineer. That's what like all Russian immigrant children who I am one uh, do when they go to colleges, they become engineers. But I saw the course load when my, um, when my like, when my advisor in college showed me all of the courses that I'd have to take to be a, um, an engineering student. And it was packed, it was loaded and it was scattered all throughout the day. It was like, I had one class at nine, another class at 1130, one class at two, and then like a 9 PM class. And that schedule across almost every single day, seriously, it was a lot of work and there's a lot of studying too, um, caused me to be really worried. So I asked him like, how do I work when, when this schedule is like all over the place, I can't hold down a job if I'm doing this school thing. He's like, oh yeah, most engineering students don't work. They can't work. There's, there's too much studying going on. And it was like right then that I knew that I cannot be an engineering student because I love my side hustles. I love to work. I love to make money on the side. And I was ready to sacrifice literally my entire future for seemingly like this stupid little personal training thing that I was doing at the time, making like an extra $500 a week or something because I wanted to keep working through college and I didn't want to spend four years just studying without the ability to make some money on the side or um, have my like economic or financial future progress in some measurable way. And looking back on it now, like I would have been just fine. I could have taken out a loan for student debt and had some student debt graduating. I could have probably gotten a great job, but because I sacrificed um, both the ability to go into my initial preferred degree and instead chose accounting and business administration, which are more flexible, and also the potential income that I would have made, which is far greater in the engineering space, especially from the university that I was graduating from. In exchange for just a little bit of extra time to work, I didn't end up with any student debt, so I managed to pay through college all myself. And I actually had $9,000 saved up when I graduated college, which I was investing in the stock market with because I had some time to learn and to invest. And with that $9,000, I purchased my first duplex, which got the whole ball rolling. Yeah, so I think you just encapsulated a lot in terms of that snippet of during college, you, uh, especially when you read Robert Kiyosaki, you knew that you kind of don't want to be working for other people in terms of you want to make sure that you have some things where you can work on your own that can lead you to getting passive income and side hustles and et cetera, which is what you chose doing those side businesses. And you talked about real estate and you talked about investing. So we want to cover all of that. So let's start with investing to begin with. How did you know you learn about investing and what do you kind of preach people to understand about the necessity of investing your money? Um, let's stick to a potential younger demographic. So I'm speaking to all the high schoolers, all the college students right now, maybe in their early 20s. I, I certainly think that in starting to invest later on is just as valuable, um, if not more so. But 
to a younger demographic, I absolutely think the best method to start investing would be to open a Roth IRA and contribute as close to the maximum allowance possible every single year. They put a cap on it. They put a cap on how much you can legally contribute to your Roth IRA because it is such a crazy overpowered tax advantaged account that they don't want the ultra wealthy or even like the, the higher middle class abusing it. It's, it's legitimately that powerful that they set the cap at $6,000. And $6,000 might sound like a lot to you guys, but it, and it was a lot to me at the time too, but I did everything I possibly could to get my $6,000 in. I contributed throughout the year. So I had a, a payment plan set up. <clears throat> and then they also allow you to extend contributions into uh, April 15th of the next year. And so I like pushed so, so hard to get that $6,000 in every single year from when I was um, 18. And I did have to take out some um, at a later time. But that's the other great thing about the Roth IRA is you can take out your contributions penalty free. So there's literally no downside to contributing to a Roth IRA because your, your growth is tax-free. You can withdraw your contributions at any time, tax and penalty-free. And it's literally so OP that they have to cap it so that the middle class and the, the wealthy class don't abuse it for their, own, for their own purposes. So definitely the best way to start investing would be with a Roth IRA for almost everyone. It's super simple to set up. You can invest in whatever kind of stocks or mutual funds or index funds you want. And it's just a crazy, crazy tax advantaged account. So I've, I, I also started reading, um, I will teach you to be rich. And obviously it talks about a lot of retirement accounts, including HSA, 401k, Roth IRA, obviously. So um, Ramit says he, he talks about, you know, 401ks can also be helpful. So when do you think is the right time to use both? Because I know I know you can use both retirement accounts. When when is the best time for for someone to use the best of both worlds? I would prioritize the 401k over the Roth IRA if your employer has a 401k match. It's uh, essentially them saying if you contribute three percent to your retirement, we will match three percent. And the numbers vary. Sometimes it's two percent. Sometimes it's one. I've seen them as high as up to seven percent. Uh, employer matching, which is nuts, but whatever they contribute is essentially like a free raise to you. If they contribute 3%, it means they're giving you 3% more money um, contributed to your Roth, contributed to your 401k than they initially promised you on your salary negotiation. So that's a huge benefit. And I would always take that over even something as uh, powerful as a Roth IRA. But most people getting started investing don't have like a super sweet job with a 401k match. And if they do, it's like a 1% match. So sure, max that out, but it's not as substantial as a, as a Roth IRA, which literally almost anyone can start. Um, they, they do have income caps. So if you're, if you're making too much money already, you're not going to be able to benefit from it. But yeah, Roth IRA is definitely the way to go for most people until you have a baller employer that can match your 401k. Yeah, that's a really great point because with the 401k, like especially with the employee match, it's free money. You got to take free money, especially if, in that, if it's in that situation. And one concept that I wanted to get your opinion on is how do you believe, do you believe that it's possible to beat the market in the sense that people maybe our age or just coming out of college should try to attempt to invest in slightly, which might be slightly more riskier individual stocks and, you know, maybe Bitcoin and stuff like that? Or do you suggest that 
they stick with the options of mutual funds and index funds and keep the safe, consistent uh, growth. I really like what um, very well-known investor Jim Cramer recommends for most people getting started in the stock market. Ensure that your first $10,000 is put into an index fund, something like BTI, VOO, um, SPY, if you want uh, slightly more volume on that. But basically, an index fund that tracks the market that is extremely safe and that can keep your first $10,000 very secure. After that, if you want to research stocks, if you want to get into the nitty gritty of individual companies, I think any company in the S&P 500 is relatively safe to invest into, and you can choose for a long-term outlook to invest in that company. As long as you understand its fundamentals, as long as you have done some research, as long as you agree with the product, if you don't use the product, you probably don't have an opinion on it, so I wouldn't recommend investing there. But generally, the um, opposite of this is day trading, where you uh, buy a company and then you sell it for uh, hopefully a profit in uh, a week or the same day or within a couple hours or even scalping where you sell it within minutes. That hasn't statistically been proven to be as positive of an outcome. So if you're trying to attempt that, um, the numbers are kind of stacked against you and the math is stacked against you. You know, if you make 50% on one trade, but then lose 50% on the next trade, you are overall in the net down because that's how math works. So it's not quite uh, the 50-50 gamble that most people think it is, where you either lose money or you win money. It's far weighed to the losing money side, which is why it's so difficult, which is why even the professionals struggle with it, which is why anyone who isn't a professional and literally doing this for their job is very likely to fail. And we always sort of preach long-term investing too, whether it's index funds or if you do your due diligence and um, you know, invest in individual stocks. But one thing that we've always heard from people is like, well, I don't want to retire. I don't want to have to wait till I'm 60 to have my, to pull out money in my Roth IRA and have like $2 million there. So I'm sure you've heard that comment a lot. Um, you know, you're, you're big on TikTok. So you've, you've probably heard that. How do you sort of respond to that question? I have, and that's a great comment. And I completely agree with it. You shouldn't wait until you're 60 to have a million dollars. You should definitely pursue something like a side hustle, pursue your own business, pursue other investments like real estate, which can get you to financial independence quicker within even years, as it was for me, like two and a half years, I was financially independent from real estate. You can do it. You can push it faster, but it's always great to have a foolproof backup plan, which mathematically is proven to work. And especially if you're coming from a low income family and have never seen wealth or aren't getting a huge retirement or aren't getting a huge um, payout when one of your relatives passes away. If you were gonna be the first millionaire in your family, it's stupid to completely ignore the Roth IRA and take that opportunity to become the the, your family's first millionaire with a guaranteed method, all because you think you want to get there faster by doing something that you could pursue anyway. Like the argument doesn't really make sense once you dig into it a little bit deeper. So definitely contribute to your Roth IRA, definitely invest in other ways, but having that as a plan B, as a foolproof plan B is, I mean, it doesn't make sense any other way. I agree, you know, Roth IRA is just, uh, it's, it's essentially a foolproof way to get a million dollars, probably even more if you do it correctly. And, you know, right before we shift to our next topic on real estate, 
I just wanted to say one thing that kind of came to my mind when you were talking about it, like being the first millionaire of your family, it's just kind of like a good, not even just a backup plan. It's just kind of a safe long-term thing. Once you're 60 and you're able to set the precedent to like your younger generations that you can make a million dollars with this Roth IRA, think about what your kids will do. And then your kids can benefit off that million dollars. And then they can set up a system where once they're 60, they're, they're able to help their kids who are able to help their kids, you know, and have that like huge pool of like each generation just making so much money, which will just help everyone. So I think that's another way to look at it, that if you start doing it, if you're the first one to do it now, then your next generations won't have to wait 30 years or wait until they're 60 to actually reap all the benefits because, you know, you're the one who's kind of set that apart, who set that standard. Exactly. And I think that it's even better as like a, a backup plan than something like starting a business uh, just in the big picture. If you have a family member or relative or like maybe even your mom, maybe you're still living with your parents, which is totally cool. Love my parents. And they say, why are you pursuing this real estate thing? It's so risky. You're going to lose so much money. You're not going to be able to retire off of it if they doubt you. But you can show them this Roth IRA backup plan where, hey, mom, I contribute $70 a week. Hey, mom, it appreciates on average over the last 30 years at about 8% per year. And in 40 years, I will be guaranteed to have a million dollars because this is the math. Then the risk of starting to invest in real estate doesn't seem that bad because you're a guaranteed millionaire if you keep up the $70 a week investing into the Roth IRA. So then investing in real estate doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And once you got the real estate locked down, once you show that you have you know, consistent cash flow that covers all your daily expenses, an appreciation rate that is consistent across your market and across what's reasonable in the U.S. and principal pay down, meaning your tenant in there and paying down your loans, and you have assets that are legitimately growing your net worth every single month, then why not retire and do whatever the heck you want? It's like each one of these steps is like your backup plan. And the Roth IRA is the first one. Once you have that secured, you can move on to something else and then to something else and then be, you know, on creative mode and do whatever you want. And I think we, we talked about this with someone else, with another one of our guests on our show. Um, they, they talked about how like the, the term millionaire is coined as something that's like surreal, only, only like someone who's like, you know, born rich and wealthy can attain that. But really, like, like I told my dad the other day, like you can invest in this when you're 18 and by the time you're 60, you'll have like 2 million in the, in the bank, just growing tax-free. And he sort of laughed in my face saying like, that's not possible. And I'm like, well, it is like people just avoid looking at the numbers and sort of look at the terms and back away from it because it's too much work, but it's yeah. really the easiest thing that you can do. Yeah. But it's um, too much money. Yeah. Once it starts to get exponential like that, it's hard to quantify and it's hard to process. So a lot of people have trouble understanding it so they don't start in the first place but i i agree yeah mm -hmm. so now moving on to to real estate you obviously talk a lot about real estate so how did you first get into real estate it's obviously not like the easiest thing to wrap your head around as a beginner so how did you get into it um i read a bunch of books about real estate i had a six-month period where i read 50 books and i think like 25 of them so half were about real estate they were the Bigger Pockets books. Um, I was listening to a lot of the Bigger Pockets podcast episodes. I was actually on um, a few weeks ago. So check that out if you haven't already. It's a great show, but um, it's a great wealth of knowledge. Their books that they have published are amazing as well. And it created uh, the groundwork 
to my understanding of real estate and where I can kind of succeed in real estate because there are a lot of facets to real estate. You can be a wholesaler, you can be a flipper, you can be an agent, you can be a buyer's agent, a seller's agent, you can be an inspector, you know, you can do all of these things, buy and hold, you can be a long-term investor like that, or you can just do uh, short-term rentals uh, with something like Airbnb. It's huge. And all of those books really helped me understand where I wanted to be in real estate, which was buy and hold investing and potential flips. And at the same time, also help me uh, get a little bit of background information before I get started. That way, it's not like I'm learning everything on the fly. And I at least have some contextual knowledge as to um, what the difference between bat and balloon insulation is. You know, those kind of weird things when someone mentions and it like completely hits you out of nowhere because you have no clue that either exists. It, it kind of helped develop some um, jargon in, in my mind for what real estate is and what it actually does. So I read the books and then I really aggressively just found property and invested my only $9,000 into it uh, to buy it as a duplex. I lived in the really small unit on one side and I rented out the really big unit on the other side. I rented, or I, I renovated both of them up before living there, um, but it worked out really well and the tenants started paying my rent, which means I was at the point when I was like, 21 years old, where I never had to pay for rent again in my entire life, as long as I didn't want to move. That's, that's really amazing. Cause I mean, a lot of like, that's the life. I mean, you don't have to pay for your rent. You have other people basically paying for your rent so you can live for free. So both of our parents are, um, are real estate investors. They're, they're partners in real estate. And, um, obviously it's not the easiest thing to do when you have some, some tenants, so what are some obstacles that you faced when, when you were, were started off real estate investing? I think that um, the books really prepared me very well. I didn't have any terrible tenants because I went through the screening process very well. I was very careful with who I allowed to even view my properties. One of the biggest strategies that I picked up from, I can't remember where, so I can't quote the... Uh, the initial person who gave me this idea, but it was to collect all of the tenant applications before allowing them to schedule a viewing. So the initial thought was, you don't get to waste my time by walking through my house and getting your dirty shoes all over the floors and whatever, or and any kind of potential um, waste of my time until you have at least gone through the process of submitting your application, spending two minutes of your time to show that you really are interested. Um, and this allows me to avoid the main problem that most of my peers have when investing, when investing in long-term rentals is that they have tons of applicants, but all these people are just like kind of touring to see what's on the market and they're not really interested. And at the end of the day, all you have is like a whole day wasted and then tons of like muddy footprints all around the house from people walking through. So by getting applications first, I was able to really discern who was interested and who wasn't. Um, it also separates people into a completely different demographic, people who are just shopping versus people who are actually interested to move in. And then from those applicants, I can see who the best people are, who would automatically qualify or automatically disqualify from being in one of my rental units. Like one of my rules is that you aren't allowed to smoke um, anywhere on the property. So any kind of smoking, you're not allowed to do it on the property. So if they check the smoking box, 
they're not going to get a tour because they're disqualified from being a, a renter in the first place. That allowed me to really make things very easy for myself. And I was extremely lucky to get a very great set, a uh, handful of tenants for all of my properties when I was first starting out. And in my entire career with um, almost 20 units over two and a half years, I've only had one person who didn't pay rent one time. And we were super flexible about the whole situation. And she eventually did move out. She paid all the rent back that she was due. And I didn't have to go through the eviction process. And it really wasn't even that bad. So I think that sticking to structures and processes um, similar to how you would a regular business, just having the steps already written out before you actually get into these challenging situations is very helpful. Yeah. So what I, I think a common theme that, that I've heard with real estate investing is you got to be super thorough, like whatever you do, um, whether it's like the calculations beforehand, you know, choosing what investment to buy. Because, um, um, you know, a lot of like we talked to Robert Leonard the other day and he was talking about this stuff like you got to really you know go through your math and see, you know, is this the best property that I can buy? So do you have some kind of checklist that you go through before actually investing in a property? Um, I do. I have a calculator that I built myself um, just on Excel that I use to run the numbers. Mm -hmm. That is the primary method. I invest in my area. So unlike Robert, who invests in long distance rentals, which he probably never sees most of the units he invests in, mm -hmm. where he's just looking at the numbers and, and buying it. I look at the numbers and I also invest in my area. So I know which neighborhoods are bad, which neighborhoods are not good. Uh, and which neighborhoods to avoid, which are, they're all, they're all terrible things. I don't invest in those kinds of properties that are in those areas. Right. And I know them so well because I literally drive those streets. So if a new property goes up and it it's brand new, you know, new construction, and it's selling for a hundred thousand dollars under what I think is market value. It seems like a great deal on paper. You know, I run my calculator shows great returns. I'm like, oh my gosh, this thing is new. There's nothing wrong with it. But since I'm investing in the area, I would know whether it was just built in a really terrible neighborhood with a lot of crime, no public schools. And I'm instantly going to know that if I had invested in that property where the cash flow looks great with the numbers, I'll check out and it seems perfect. It passes the inspection. I would get tenants who are far under my usual tenant requirements. And I would likely lose tenants who are good very quickly because the neighborhood that they're in, they will soon come to realize is not a neighborhood that they want to be in for the long term. So I'm going to have tons of tenant turnover. I'm going to have potential damage. I'm going to have a difficulty finding good tenants. And I could potentially rent to tenants who aren't good, who would ruin my property. So that's, that's one of the things that I also look at, but it's a strength of mine because I invest where I know. Yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's the same thing with investing too, because people look at like, you know, P to E, P E ratio ratios. And they see right. like, you know, this is, this is really cheap stock. It's, it's going up, but they don't realize there's a business behind that stock too. Yes. Right. You got to understand that there's, there's a lot behind just that one number and, or they look at, you know, dividend yield and they go crazy, but um, you know, you, you got to understand to Robert, right? I mean, no, 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 no. I totally investor. understand. Right. He likely will succeed. Mm -hmm. uh, he already is succeeding. He's very successful in his current real estate investments. Mm -hmm. It's just a different mentality. So right. whether you want to look at the fundamentals, um, 
like PE ratio and, and base your entire assessment off of that, or mm. whether you want to go a little bit deeper, look into the actual company and how it's performing. I think both types of investments have succeeded in the past. It's just a slightly different level of risk associated with both of them. Right. It's what you're comfortable with at the end of the day, right? Because he he says he has, you know, a property manager that, you know, sometimes he the property manager makes decisions because he trusts him enough. And, you know, it just again, what you're comfortable with, because at the end of the day, that's that's what it's all about. But, um, you know, real estate, you got to be thorough. You got to know all that stuff. All of that is super important. And I think self-education and self-initiative is what it's all about when it comes to both things, real estate and investing. Because like you said, it's a long process of, um, you know, you got to read, you got to learn instead of just diving in and sort of, because then you you dig yourself a hole where you now you have to, you don't know what you're doing and now you got to learn and then you got to get yourself out. So a lot, I think a lot of people struggle with that initially, but it, it's an important thing to sort of recover from. So um, how do you think um, like young people right now, what, what should they uh, do if they, if they're aspiring to go to real estate or that kind of stuff? Should they get a job? How should they, you know, build their, their investing um, material up for that? I think a job is very important. It allows you to collect income and it allows you to show work history, which is required for qualifying for many of the common um, mortgage loans right now. Mm-hmm. So you definitely need a job if you want to start investing. If you want to start buying real estate with conventional methods, um, there are exceptions to this, but getting a job and having a job while you're investing just makes it so much easier. I also recommend reading as many books as you can to try to educate yourself as quickly as possible. I think podcasts, uh, TV, um, YouTube, all of those, and TikTok and Instagram are great too because they provide um, some education. But what I really like about books is that usually the the author will spend one or two years of his life dedicated to this one project, writing out a book, making it brief and making it very digestible and relevant. And then they will publish it. Whereas on TikTok, I mean, I'm on TikTok, but legitimately I'll spend five or 10 minutes explaining a subject that I understand very well and publish it. Whereas an author would spend, again, legitimately years explaining the same subject. You get a lot more depth, you get a lot more understanding and a lot more context by reading a book where a thought is very well constructed and very well analyzed before it actually hits the page. Not that there's anything wrong with these other sources. And I really like social media for that consistent checkup. If every time that you open Instagram, you get like a ton of real estate things, you're likely gonna start investing in real estate because it's all on your mind and it's all that you see day after day, which is great. But I think as far as gathering information, books are great. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. That's what I learned too, because I think, again, Ramit Sethi, he says there's always shortcuts in life, right? There's always stuff yes. that you can do, right? Like there are summaries for books. There are, you know, you can try to say that you're going to go on like a keto diet or whatever. But, you know, at the end of the day, those are just not as effective as actually doing the right thing. So I think what you said is, is super important. So when, you're, when, you, when you've gone about real estate investing, what are some like tricks that you've learned? Like, because I know in Rich Dad Poor Dad, I think it's called the 1031 exchange he talks about. Are there any like um, tricks or tips that you found that are really helpful? Um, 1031 exchange is a great one. That is a very common um, tax avoidance 
practice, it, it defers the taxes to a later date to where you don't have to pay them right now. And eventually when you sell the property, you'll have to pay them then, or you can continue rolling it over into the future. One of the things that I found was really instrumental in my real estate investments, and I hate to even call it a hack because like I use it almost every time I buy a property, is buying properties with zero money down finding these unconventional loans where you don't have to put a down payment, you don't really need uh, much money in the bank, and you don't have to have a super good credit score either to be able to invest in properties is what I think is like the craziest thing about real estate investing. I use it to buy my second um, duplex, and then I use it to buy my third duplex, and then I use it to buy um, another property after that. And essentially what it is, is finding a way to convince the bank that the investment that you have is very much a good idea for them to uh, lend money out to. So what you have to do is convince the bank that the investment you're potentially buying, the duplex, triplex, whatever it is, is a good investment for them to be in. Since they're lending out their own money, they have their own criteria and can really be flexible on the rules. So they don't need to conform to the standard 20% down or 5% down or 3.5% down and all the other clauses like an inspection clause, um, a potential appraisal and things conditional on the appraisal. They let you do whatever you want as long as it's a good investment for them. So how I have often posed this potential investment for them is showing that I have a property which I am buying for under market value with a really high uh, appraised value, meaning whatever it gets appraised at is very high and I'm purchasing at a huge discount. And the delta between those, the gap in the purchase price and the appraised value is what I use as my equity. So if they require on a property, let's say $40,000 down as a down payment, but I don't wanna pay $40,000 to buy the property, I can show them that I'm purchasing it $40,000 under the appraised value and boom, that difference is what I'm allowed to use as my down payment mm -hmm. without actually having to use any of my money. Oh. It, it works even in the post-coronavirus um, economy, especially now with the, with the housing market like really heating up this summer. Uh, it also works if you have uh, potentially the ARV used as the higher end number. So the after repair value, you show them that you're purchasing a house for 100,000, which is going to sell for 300,000. They'll potentially lend you a percentage of that 300,000 instead of the more common percentage of the 100,000. And it also works with uh, tax assessed values. If the borough that you're currently in assesses it at 300,000, but you're purchasing it at 100,000, you can get a loan based on that 300,000 instead of the 100,000 and go into the deal with a lot less money. And I like mm -hmm. to do that because it allows me to use that money, the 40,000 or however much I had on repairs or literally just another house and scale myself quite a bit quicker. Mm -hmm. It is leverage, so there is always the risk of leverage, the risk of danger, investing with leverage, um, but as long as you're able to manage it carefully, I think it's just a risk-adjusted return that you could be seeing potentially higher than investing with 20% down, and it's also much more accessible because not everyone has 20% of um, their entire real estate portfolio or whatever they want to be at to invest. If you want a million-dollar real estate portfolio, it's like you have to have $200,000, which not many people do, whereas this strategy can get you in the door a little bit quicker so you don't have to wait years and years accumulating all that money to start. Right, right. So I just wanted to quickly ask you this. You you mentioned that you have 20 uh, units, right? 20, 20 real estate properties? 
I had 20 units um, at like the peak. I'm actually scaling down a little bit right now mm-hmm. and diversifying my portfolio in a way that reduces the risk for me a little bit, as well as reduces the management burden because my management company does do all of it and I'm a part of that. And I'm trying to dedicate more time now to social media, TikTok, Instagram, and the other things that I've got going on. So right now, I think I'm sitting at about 14, but uh, yeah, at, at my like peak, I was uh, 18 or 19 or something like that. Wow. So I guess my question was initially like, how did you manage all of those at once? I treated it like a business. Um, that was one thing that my, my business degree actually did help me with is create systems and processes. And then also with the businesses that I was working in with in accounting, um, I really took a lot from them to create structures and processes that automated most of the work for me and allowed me to not make any decisions. All the decisions were pre-planned. If a tenant paid late, this happens. If they don't pay after the late notice, this happens. If they uh, decline the eviction and actually do pay rent, this is what this happens. And all of these steps were like pre-planned out. So I was essentially not making any decisions. I wasn't an employee. I was just like over the top looking down on everything working and running as it should because I took the time to lay out these processes. Um, That is what kind of allowed me to scale consistently and not be overburdened or um, stressed out or any of the things that came up. Yeah. Cause I, w- I was wondering, like, that's a lot for a person also working a job and then doing this. Um, you know, it can be a lot to handle sometimes, but, um, I just wanted to, you know, before we finish up, I just wanted to ask you, you also mentioned about credit, building up credit. So how do you go about building up credit as a young person? Um, credit's is really instrumental to every young person. And unfortunately they don't understand it or know about it until they're no longer a young person. So anyone that's a young person listening to this, I highly recommend you learn the basics about credit. Um, I have a few free guides on my Instagram, Daniel underscore Isles, where it's like a story and you can kind of walk through the steps and it'll give you the, the fundamentals of what you need to know. But if you're just starting out, I highly recommend starting with a secured credit card It's a card that you can get even if you have no credit and you put a deposit down, you get a credit card, you're allowed to start building your credit and then um, you can eventually graduate onto a better credit card that potentially gives you tons of rewards just for using it, purchase protection, return protection, warranties, all these kinds of great free perks that you get to have completely for free all while building your credits for purchases later on down the road, like a vehicle or a house. Yeah. And it, it's so important because you can start at 18 and it's, it's so important because they're all for the big payments. Like if you need a loan for something, if you're trying to buy a car, if you're trying to uh, trying to buy rental, uh, rent, rental property, whatever it may be, it's, it's so, so important when you want to get into this stuff that it starts at a super young age. And again, first thing is you gotta, you gotta learn, you gotta learn, you gotta learn. So, um, uh, as we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the best books that helped you when you started learning? Because I know you you said you read like a lot, a lot of books. So which ones were, were the best and most significant for you? I really like the ones that you guys mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad Poor Dad or Meet mm-hmm. Satie's I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Um, if I can make one more recommendation it would probably be Brandon Turner's, the book on investing in real estate with low or no money down, because it really pulls back the curtain on real estate 
financing and shows you that you don't need a whole bunch of money to start. You don't need a whole bunch of credit to start. And that there are so many creative ways in real estate to get started if you wanted to. One of my favorite lines from the book goes some, I don't want to completely butcher it, but it goes something like, um, where there is a will to invest in real estate, there is a way to invest in real estate, even if you don't have anything to do it with or something like that. Um, where you legitimately don't need any of these things that most people think you need to invest in real estate to get started. And you can start doing it basically once you learn enough about it. So it's, it's knowledge that is that gap between you and investing in real estate and not any of the other material things like money or credit or whatever. Right. And, and that's so awesome because I feel like that goes for almost everything in personal finance, whether it's investing in you know stocks or whatever investing in yourself or investing in real estate you know you don't have to be some math genius you don't have to be you know you don't have to have a bunch of money you just have to have the will to do it and you know you can do it um so i think that that encapsulates pretty much the essence of personal finance it's it's for the layman it's for the common common person they can do it mm-hmm. that's that's the main message with with our, our thing and and what you do too so I just want to say thank you so much for joining our show. We really appreciate it. Um, you know, we really enjoyed this and learned a lot. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. I really, uh, it's, it's cool to be here. So thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem.